Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcasts. I'm Fraser Myers and as ever I'm joined by Spike's deputy editor and host of the Last Orders podcast, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the show, May's historic defeat, the US government shutdown and the new Gillette advert. The eyes to the right, 202. The nose to the left, 432. It is clear that the House does not support this deal, but tonight's vote tells us nothing, nothing about how or even if it intends to honour the decision the British people took in a referendum Parliament decided to hold. Theresa May has suffered the largest Commons defeat in history. 432 MPs voted against her Brexit deal and just 202 supported it. 118 MPs in her own party rejected it too. In normal times, this would spell not only the end of the deal, but the end of the government too. But the next day, she survived a no-confidence vote comfortably. Clearly, we don't live in normal times. Tom, what do you make of what's been happening in Parliament? Well, I think what's been remarkable about all of it and how utterly screwed up this whole process is, is the fact that the defeat of May's withdrawal deal, which anyone who listens to this podcast will know um, was a remain by another name, would have actually locked us into EU rules, left us with less say over the rules that govern us than we even have now, the defeat of that has actually led to a situation in which Brexit is being softened up further, that a second referendum is supposedly even more likely, that the Electoral Commission is actually putting in contingency plans to prepare for one if that's where we go next. I think it really speaks to how screwed up this whole process is, that that's what the outcome of this is. I think the one thing that people need to be reminded of in relation to the vote on the withdrawal deal. This was a battle between various different flavours of non-Brexit. Do they want May's deal? Do they want Norway plus? Do they want a second referendum? That's really where we're at now. Um, And I think going into the next stage of this, we need to recognise that the issue with Brexit, as it has always been, is the fact that, again, three quarters of Parliament voted Remain, 52% of the country voted Leave. And all of these distortions that we're seeing um, are really just a result of that chasm, frankly, and the failure of anyone in the political class to recognise that it's their duty to implement this. Ella? Well, they say a lot can happen in 24 hours of politics. It feels like a lot has happened in the last 48 hours, but actually, really, if you look at it, nothing much has happened at all. So, mm-hmm. uh, yes, Theresa May's deal was shot down, but that's like saying the sun is going to rise tomorrow. No one was particularly <laughs> surprised about that happening. Uh, just last night, we had the vote of no confidence in Theresa May that passed, which is such a depressing indictment on Parliament that even though I, I don't particularly care whether Parliament has confidence in her or not, it just shows what kind of stalemate they're at. The Labour Party is completely incapable of doing anything other than showing its own incompetence. <laughs> uh, it's very interesting that even polls at this point show that uh, the Tories are six points ahead of Labour. So does that show that there's support for the Tories or just hatred of the Labour Party? I, mean, I don't think you can work out either one. But I think what really struck me, and I was in Westminster um, on both nights, and there was the kind of the bars of protesters. It was quite exciting from the outside. Uh, but it really struck home that we were out here watching 600 or so people inside cosy rooms deciding what's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years of British politics. And those of us who voted leave or remain, who took part in this referendum, have been completely shut out of this process. What's happening in Parliament now is has no reflection on the outcome of the referendum. Tom's exactly right. And Brendan wrote about this and spiked this week, that what we saw was a battle between how best to scupper our vote. 
So, you know, I think this has gone even beyond questions of the EU, beyond mm. questions of Brexit. It's now about are our politicians fit to do the jobs that they're meant to do, which is represent the people. Most uh, alarming for me is is the way that pretty much everyone in the in Parliament has turned against no deal, which, as we've been saying for months and months on end, is the only viable route to leaving the European Union at this at this point. Not only did you have this motion last week by Dominic Grieve taking a no deal off the table, potentially, you've also had Corbyn saying he will refuse to negotiate around Brexit unless no deal is taken off the table. Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, has just been on a big phone call with loads of big businesses, reassuring them that no deal is not going to happen and that we will have business as usual, effectively. I mean, it is really striking the way... All the political parties, all sides, whether it's the conservative pro-business Philip Hammond or the supposedly radical socialist Jeremy Corbyn, are all conspiring against the public to take what they voted for off the table. No, completely. And I think all of the discussion is, is what's one of the things that's so disheartening about it is that how much we've heard all of this before. I mean, straight after the referendum result, there was this um, pretty disingenuous argument from many Remainers that what we had to do was enter into some sort of Norway style agreement in order to, you know, strike some sort of a compromise, you know, a Brexit name only with less say than we had currently was actually seen as something which served both when obviously it would leave no one happy, frankly. There was people at the time who were saying that this still needed to be sorted out by a second referendum. The only difference now is that no one's no one really in any position of real influence and power in the House of Commons is actually making a full throated defence of Brexit. So it just shows that if anything it's a more degraded point than it was previously. What's been kind of interesting is that, again, this argument has reared its head recently. Well, this is the inevitable consequence of the distortions of trying to mix our representative democracy with direct democracy. This is an argument that many Remainers are making. And effectively, when they make that argument, they're trying to put the blame on the public, on Leave voters, that um, by their vote is effectively the problem in all of this. It's them and the people who allowed them to have this say, which has led to these kinds of distortions. Our vote isn't set up with it. But I think, if anything, what's happened in Parliament recently has shown that the issue is very much the other way around. It's because our representative democracy has become so unrepresentative. It's because there are so many MPs who are so completely cut off from public opinion on the question of the EU borders, trade, etc., that we needed the referendum in the first place to make our to try and jolt some democracy back into the system. And I think as all of the focus has been on Westminster and what can possibly get through the House of Commons, I think people are really missing the broader picture here. There was a poll from Delta Poll that came out this week, which talked that even the two main party leaders have around 50% or less support amongst their own voters, which is historically very, very low. You look at some of the research that we've talked about before on this podcast from John Curtis, pointing out that only about 9% of people feel that they strongly believe in either of the political parties. These people are living on borrowed time. Um, and the more and more in which they do this, as much as they might want to pretend that they're valiant warriors for their constituents and the national interest. The only consequence of this in the long term, at least, is that it's going to put people, if not off of politics, and certainly off of these politicians. I am flabbergasted by what's happening in relation to No Deal, um, not just because the goalposts have changed so dramatically. I mean, it's, it was only last year that the Prime Minister was talking about No Deal being better than a bad deal. Yeah. And now it's been reframed as a kind of suicide mission. We've talked about this loads on this podcast. Um, but just as a very technical point, remember that MPs voted for Article 50 with a majority of 384, mm. which meant that the very simple fact is, if we don't have a deal, then you leave the EU with no deal. I mean, I, I don't want to push it like Jacob Rees-Mogg says and says this would be them breaking the law if they go against it. But you do think this is an extremely disingenuous kind of way to 
play politics. Phil Mullen's written a great article for Spike this week that everyone should read because it just details very clearly how this whole panic over no deal is symptomatic of a much bigger problem within the British economy. He makes this fabulous point that politics is not the cause of economic phenomenon. So this is, you can't see it in that way, but more crucially, that economics is not the cause of political change. This whole idea that either leave voters were voting because, uh, you know, their conditions are crap and they've got rubbish jobs and they're sick and fed up of their local high streets going under, um, or that people are not going to want to push for the full democratic outcome of Brexit, which would at this point be no deal, because they're scared of, what, Airbus leaving us. I mean, mm. it's the, mm. it's such a elitist, actually, and disingenuous way of looking at politics. I think the other big piece of this is, of course, the Labour Party. Um, Jeremy Corbyn has, since the vote of no confidence failed, has come under even more pressure to move towards a second referendum. All of the other party leaders in Westminster, the pro-Remain ones at least, have written to him, putting on that pressure. And of course, everyone keeps reminding him that about 80% of his membership are, whilst very much pro-him, are also fiercely pro-Remain. But the thing I think is people really should understand about this is that there's been this unfortunate consequence of all of this is that Jeremy Corbyn and some of the people around him have been able to pose as if they're the real Democrats in all of this mm-hmm. because they keep saying that it would be a terrible betrayal to go back to the country. And I think we need to really recognise that the reason that Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him are against a second referendum is only because it's bad optics. They want to win the next general election. They know that about 50 or so of their target seats voted heavily to leave and they're worried about what signal that would send, despite the fact that in substance they have already undermine Brexit entirely, the sort of Brexit they are seeking, the sort that supposedly Theresa May would need to negotiate with the rest of the House in order to proceed would involve a permanent customs union locking us into the EU and locking us into a part of the EU that people on the Labour left used to heavily criticise for the way in which it inflicts damage on various third world economies. He's completely undermined his own principles, his own prior arguments. He's completely scuppered Brexit and I don't think anyone should let him get away with posing as one of the last people standing up for the will of the people. It's entirely disingenuous. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying the Spike podcast so far. And if you are, why not help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider? It won't take long, but it will make a huge difference for us. So we'd be massively grateful if you could take a tiny bit of your time to give us a rating and a review. Right, now back to the show. So now we go to the chaos and paralysis on the other side of the Atlantic, where Donald Trump is currently presiding over the longest government shutdown in US history. At the time of recording, we're on day 26, and 800,000 government workers have been on mandatory leave or working without pay. So what is this all about? It is a historic situation and not one to be sniffed at because hundreds of thousands of people Mm. are not getting their paychecks, are not in work. Far more are on absence of leave and being furloughed by departments, which means the country is essentially in many ways uh, at a stalemate. People are just sort of sitting around wondering what's going to happen. On the other hand, what they're rowing over this $5 billion for the wall to be built is, as Sean Collins wrote in Spike, one-tenth of 1% of the budget. So, mm. so just to put that into perspective, this is actually a really, really small 
thing, but it's over a very big political issue, the wall, which Democrats see as their moral mission to oppose. And Trump sees as the only way to stick true with his base mm. is to say, I am going to build that wall. So uh, zoom out. And this is actually a very, very bizarre situation to have the country go into shutdown over. Nevertheless, it doesn't seem like anyone's moving anywhere anytime soon. I mean, it is, it is interesting, this, this question of, of the wall, particularly as, as you say, it, it is a lot of money for one to enforce one policy, you know, $5.7 billion for a wall that most people, even on its own terms, say yeah. would be ineffective at, you know, improving border security. Trump has been making this argument recently about 90% of the heroin in the US comes from Mexico, mm. and therefore we need to build a wall. But most of it actually comes through entirely legal ports is hidden you know it, it, it's not coming through by people throwing sacks over the over the fence as as he seems to imagine but the problem is that the wall is the thing we most associate with with trump you know it is his most well-known pledge anyone can recite that chant build the wall and so if he fails to get this wall through then he essentially fails as a president yeah and I think the thing is that it's become entirely symbolic and therefore become a kind of phony discussion mm. on both sides, which is why I think, despite the fact that this is a very polarising issue, most people in the Republican Party want it, most people in the Democrats don't want it. Nevertheless, I think when you really get down to it, I think what most people are concerned about, if they're concerned about immigration, is doing it properly, not just yeah. pursuing this one mad policy um, just for the sake of it. But I think that's what makes this issue so intractable is it's become all about symbolism and posturing rather than substance. As you point out, the wall is not going to do anything to solve the alleged problems as Trump sees them. Similarly, as Wendy Kamner points out on Spike this week, the government doesn't even own some of the land in which they would have to build this wall. Mm. You know, So there, there's no plan in place for this to happen. It's entirely a kind of gesture. But then on the other side, of course, you have the Democrats who are raging against the wall. You've got Pelosi saying that it's immoral and not where we stand as a country, despite the fact, as has been repeated many, many times, in 2006, many leading Democrats voted for the Secure Fences Act, which was hundreds of miles of fencing, um, at a far bigger cost than this $5.7 billion for the wall, um, and voted for that pretty happily. Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader, who again um, has been leading the charge against Trump on all of this, voted for that piece of legislation. And I think, unfortunately, the issue of immigration in America, as it is in Britain and across Europe is one that is um, very important because it's something which hasn't really been addressed in a meaningful way in a very long time and which is what makes this phony war so irritating. Mm. You've got both sides playing towards symbolism, playing towards slogans rather than actually trying to take the public seriously um, and unfortunately it's because it's become so symbolic that it's also become so intractable it feels like. Yeah I think that's true and, and, and I, I think that that's one of the reasons for I, I suppose Trump's intransigence and his kind of indifference to what's going on he's he's taken pride in engineering this this shutdown which is completely bizarre you know completely ignoring all the hundreds of thousands of people who will go without their paychecks who you know have had this foist upon them who haven't been able to plan for this and many of those people will be people in his base mm -hmm. you know government workers aren't just the swamp in dc <laughs> you know they're people all over the country working for you know national parks working for various um, tax offices and things like that and it's quite concerning that you know there's there's talk that money for the food stamps program could run out soon you know this is a really serious issue that will have major knock-on effects and as you say Tom it's over basically symbolism and I also don't think that Trump should be allowed to forget the, what's happened during the shutdown because it's it's revealed some very big problems that potentially haven't had light shed on them in relation to the American economy. So, for example, the fact that the Agricultural Department 
all of its staff is now on a leave of absence, uh, which means that farmers are not being able to put in new applications for subsidies. Some aren't getting their subsidies, even on a basis that they're not getting information that that department puts out about how many crops to plant and where. I mean, the fact is it shows how uh, propped up the American economy is is many in many ways. And mm. in relation to the food stamps, I mean, that's that's a real dire indictment on the state of the American economy and the fact that you have so many people dependent on a welfare system that Trump is continuously slating. So, I mean, all of this stuff is revealing some some very big problems that this shutdown is only going to heighten. And even if it does get solved, if they come to some arrangement which, you know, appeases the Democrats' desire to allow the dreamers, the um, pe- people who were born immigrants, came to the US to stay in in exchange for some money uh, for some part of a wall or a fence or however they decide to pose it. None of these issues are going away. You know, either the Republicans or the Democrats shouldn't be allowed to forget what this shutdown has revealed in relation to the state of America. Mm. And I I also think for anyone who cares about um, immigrants' rights and cares about um, migration as an issue and wants to really push for a more liberal and humane system, I think the way in which the the Democrats have turned this into a kind of culture war issue almost Mm. is actually really, really bad news. Because again, you know, you go... You go horse pointing this out, but nevertheless, you know, for instance, people have talked about Trump's immigration policies as being, you know, uniquely Hitlerian. Yet, just on the issue of something like deportations, as we know, during the Obama years, they hit this enormous peak. In 2012, he was deporting something like 400,000 people, whereas last year, um, Trump only managed about 250,000. Now, mm. there are many other things that Trump has done, of course, many changes to the asylum system process, the invisible wall, as many people call it, and this whole zero tolerance crackdown from ICE, which has been absolutely horrendous. You know, five days after he's in office, he signs this executive order calling on them to basically deport anyone they possibly could, Department of Homeland Security, removing any of the discretion that many of these officers had, which basically led to this t- horrible situation that green card holders permanent residents were effectively either being almost deported or locked up for long periods of time waiting for their trial on the basis of decades old misdemeanors you know this is a really terrible situation but at the same time i think by effectively just making this very showy stance against the wall whilst not really making amends for any of their previous policies or actually trying to look into the issue of immigration more deeply as schumer and pelosi constantly point out we all agree that something needs to be done about the border. Even people who are fiercely pro-migration in this discussion should be wary about the politics being sucked out of it and this all just be- mm. becoming about who is and isn't a good person, who is and isn't Hitler. It really doesn't help anyone. I'd just like to take a really quick moment to say a massive thank you to everyone who's been donating to Spiked. I know many of you who listen to this podcast have donated to us in the past or make monthly donations, and it's thanks to your contributions and generosity that we can keep going and growing. Spiked has some very exciting plans for the year ahead with our podcasts, and we need the help of listeners and readers like you to make them happen. So, if you haven't before, please do consider making a donation, or even better, setting up a monthly donation. It's really easy to do. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. Now, back to the show. Is this the best a man can get? Instead of excuses, we need to make change.
This week, Gillette launched a Me Too-inspired advertising campaign. Instead of promising the best a man can get, the razor blade manufacturer called on its customers to be the best men they can be, and it's been hugely controversial. The advert has earned 731,000 dislikes on YouTube. So, what's behind the backlash? I think the backlash is quite simple, is that people don't like being lectured to. I mean, the thing about these adverts is, as many people who leapt to their defence were trying to point out, you know, how could anyone have problems with this? So depicting men stopping kids from bullying one another, mm. or depicting men telling one each other off when one of them tries to follow a woman up the street. You know, who could ever possibly have a problem with that? Of course not. But the thing about virtue signalling is the fact that it presumes that the vast majority of people are not virtuous, mm. that they need these kinds of instructions just to get them up to the watermark of basic decency. That's why it irritates people so much. Now, of course, I, as much as anyone else, tire of the kind of incessant online culture war. The fact that um, as soon as, you know, Greg's put out a vegan sausage roll or there's a new Gillette advert, suddenly, you know, Piers Morgan is rallying the un-PC <laughs> masses online to launch boycotts, etc. It's irritating, yeah. no doubt. But at the same time, I think people need to recognise that the reason this has irked so many people so much is because there is this bizarre tendency on behalf of everyone, but increasingly for some reason corporations, <laughs> um, to treat it as their job to kind of issue public service announcements to a public who broadly already agree with the points being made. And I think that's, that's you know, always going to wind people up, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's the point is if this was just another, as you call it in the spectator, woke advert um, that was just about, which I think the Gillette advert probably is just about making sure that it gets seen, mm, definitely. you know, it's, it's creating a controversy so that it will um, up its publicity. On the other hand, this issue of toxic masculinity and telling boys to be the right kind of boys in the same way that feminism lectures to women about how to be the right kind of women as well it's part of a much bigger political discussion that is a bit more serious than a Gillette advert which is the uh, sort of medicalization of masculinity as this illness the toxic illness that uh, presumably all men suffer from unless they have it drilled out of them which is a complete insult to young men, as I see it. I mean, I'd be relatively pissed off if I was a young guy um, to be told that I was suffering from toxic masculinity if occasionally I had a rumble with my friends, you know, which is, <laughs> yeah. which is what happens in the Gillette advert. But also it's this bizarre idea that it is the job of big business to tell us how to behave. I mean, the, the power that advertising is given in relation to these whole discussions about political correctness and representation and responsibility of business is mad because I thought that we were about saying that big business should keep out of our personal lives. You know, what mm. about that whole idea of being uh, influenced, that panic about what influence big business can have? But if it's the right kind of influence, yeah. if it's pushing you to be a nice politically correct middle of the road softy as it sort of seems like in this advert then then that's fine it's interesting to i think to compare it with the nike advert that came out yeah. um around six months ago because that was another example of what you might call woke capitalism yeah. um you know where basically nike dipped its um hands into the fire of the culture war and actually seemingly didn't get too burnt there was a big backlash but According to CBS, their sales went up by 36% on the year. So it can be very effective. But I think the Gillette advert is perhaps slightly different because of this hectoring tone. Mm. On the question of toxic masculinity, last week, the American Psychological Association declared toxic masculinity to be a mental illness. And they made the following statement, which I think is just worth reading in full. Traits of so-called traditional masculinity, like suppressing emotions and masking distress 
often start early in life and have been linked to less willingness by boys and men to seek help, more risk-taking and aggression, possibly harming themselves and and those with whom they interact. And I mean, it's very strange to see certain values and certain character traits, which once would be be seen as admirable, are now denounced um, as basically a mental illness. Mm. And, you know, this kind of pseudo medical language is used to make actually what is quite a political and ideological judgment definitely and they're not just admirable values they're also kind of things that we would broadly see as kind of universal values mm. you know i mean it was really interesting seeing that the american psychological association's kind of description of what it considered to be harmful masculinity because on top of what you were saying you know they've talked about traits such as emotional stoicism not showing vulnerability self-reliance competitiveness now when were these bad things Mm. you know now of course anyone who is so self-reliant to the point they never go to the hospital when they're injured is obviously a bad idea same goes for someone's mental health and general well-being but i don't think anyone's under the view that there is this kind of epidemic of people who are you know who have these kinds of problems i think what's kind of interesting about it is that when when the whole issue of toxic masculinity gets people's backs up people assume that this is a kind of like men's rights backlash against the feminization of public life i think it's quite the opposite is that for whatever reason we have become very distant from um values of kind of robust individualism of kind of of issues of self-reliance of stoicism those have become deeply unfashionable and the toxic masculinity thing is basically just one manifestation of that in a very kind of gendered way but it's a problem across the board these are things which are seen as dangerous seen as not very positive when at the same time these are values that previously we would see as incredibly valuable things for both men and women to emulate and yeah the key point is also why is why is emotional stoicism or courage or being able to maintain a poker face not a women's trait either Mm. i mean the idea that that the suggestion is that because these are all toxic masculine traits then the being you know what emotionally needy ready to cry at the drop of a hat is is feminine is for what women do and so then men should become more like women which is a kind of sexist portrayal a genuinely sexist portrayal of women's ability to uh, control their emotions i mean this is what people used to say to keep us out of public life because we would be hysterical mm. and cry you know at the first anniversary there are some things about you know traditional macho masculinity which I think most people now see as being a bit silly. So, you know, like if you're going to go around beating each other up to be, (laughs) to show your, you know, macho uh, muscles, then everyone knows that that's a bit ridiculous. But there are some incredibly good things about masculinity that I think will be a real shame if we lose and that both men and women take on, which is being tough, being able to suppress your emotions actually at the right Mm. time. The whole kind of panic now at the moment that we have about mental health that says that you have to show and reveal your emotions every time they come just means that we are going to be hysterical wrecks. I mean, there are points at which you should bottle it up and there are points at which you should do the, you know, cliched British thing of having a stiff upper lip. If we lose all of these quite central emotional abilities like being able to contain yourself and show courage which i don't care if you call them masculine or not but doing away with them will mean that we are you know have a nation that is in quite a bizarre mental state quite a genuinely (laughs) fragile mental state p.s boycott gillette You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a rating, a review, or even make a donation. We'll be back next week, but for more Spike content every day, visit spiked-online.com.